As a performer, your body is there. Hi, I'm Mad Kate, and you're listening to Sweat, Sexuality, Work, Extraction, Art, Theatrics. Sweat is a series of conversations about performance and performativity of the sexual and sexualized body at work, where work is defined as the labor of survival, the labor of care, creativity, and capital A art. How exactly do we define our work, and how does that work entangle and circumscribe our sexual identities, our creative lives, and the ways in which we provide care? How do we perform tasks, acts of care, and identities? These conversations are a means to speak between our always already sexualized and racialized bodies, anchoring in the way that we relate to the performance of work, care, and creativity. I hope that they contribute to dialogues which normalize sex work as work and all work as deserving of respect, healthy conditions, and a living wage. To take my information via a cookie and then to develop it into algorithms or memes is certainly a kind of violence, but it's very different than having indigenous communities have their water poisoned. It's really different. This episode features an interview I did with Imra Seaman, along with my partner Adrian Teicher, as part of our project Hyenas. We initially read his article, co-written with Jennifer Wenzel, entitled, What Do We Talk About When We Talk About Extractivism? These past two years, we have been working on a project called Art and Extractivism, where we've been looking at the relationship between extractivist practices and artistic practices, and how extraction operates inside of the artistic sphere, and especially in sound recording, which is our primary mode of artistic work. For us, this brings up a lot of questions around how people consent to audio being used as part of art projects or other kinds of academic projects, how the life of a sound file lives on after it's recorded, what happens to it and who's responsible for it, how we are accountable to others when we record them, and a host of other questions precisely what part of an artistic labor might be is to trouble, to trouble the easiness of these definitions that already exist and to point out that there might be kinds of connections that are important to think about. The question would be to also then be, I I think, definitionally cautious. Imra Seaman is the inaugural director of the Institute for Environment, Conservation and Sustainability and is the professor of human geography at the University of Toronto Scarborough. He is the author most recently of On Petrocultures, Globalization, Culture and Energy. Imra is currently at work on Energized, Keywords for a New Politics of Energy, co-edited with Jennifer Wenzel and is author of The Future of the Sun, a book examining corporate and state control of the transition to renewables. You could map lots of kinds of extraction. You could describe a general tendency. But again, the the danger is to flatten them, to flatten it all out under a single term. We're really happy to run upon your work because we were using the word extraction and extractivism, I'd say, quite metaphorically. Since we do field recordings primarily as as artists and we're also performers, we started to think about this act of, of taking. You know, even the word that's used, like to take a field recording, 
to um, to take an interview, perhaps. Could we use the extraction and extractivism metaphorically when speaking about how we work with um, each other as humans and also with non-human actors? So our research has been to, I guess, to what extent can we use that term? Is it useful? And what does it teach us about how our work can go forward? When we stumbled upon your article and your work, it did cause us to kind of think, is it dangerous to use this term? And in that case, what should we use? I think extractivism is really about a practice that happens in Latin America. That's where the term has primarily been used. That's where, again, you have this other term called neo-extractivism. And it's a practice that is connected to using mineral resources from the planet in a colonial fashion for small elites. So that is where the term originates. And I think that that still does a lot of work for that term. And I think whatever else we mean by it has a little bit of a metaphoric or allegorical meaning. So I'll come back to that in a minute. Extraction is a difficult concept, actually, more difficult than one might imagine. So it means different things in different contexts, of course. It can be just the taking of something from some other thing. And we can talk about exactly why that extended concept might work or might not work. But certainly, I think in its, in its common usage, uh, socially or politically, it again is about doing something with the planet, taking minerals, removing fuel from the planet, perhaps even agricultural um, extraction. So you do have this broader sense of anything that's taken out of anything else. It's that sense of out of but it then has a very specific meaning about uh, relation to the earth and that kind of practice of taking out of the earth. I will say first off, there's no danger in using extraction at all in the ways that you're describing it, because of course it has a lot of different meanings, the word extraction. And I, I can't see that there's anything wrong with talking about extracting information. That's a commonly used phrase or um, you know, extracting um, words from somebody. I have no issue with that. Um, I even have no issue with saying we've extracted data from something. There's nothing wrong with that. It's not even allegorical. It's a description of a practice that happens. What I am concerned about and what my colleague uh, Jennifer Wenzel is concerned about is when there then becomes a continuum between extracting from the earth and extracting um, my words, for instance. That continuum, which then gets developed into a social theory or a political philosophy, it seems to evade a lot of the specifics that happen at each of those sites. And it seems to then, it produces a common meaning that I think is dangerous. It suggests that there's a singular practice that happens when humans do something to anything. And there can be an articulation of that if one wants to. I haven't seen that broad philosophy outline. And I do think what's happening is there's a mobilization, what I've seen at least, there's a mobilization of this more direct, more material form of extraction and making a, a connection to that to something like data extraction, as an example, that very, very much more technocratic, much more abstract form of extraction and linking those all together as a singular practice of what human beings do. It seems to me that that 
is too much of a, a generalization. It does indicate something that an author wants to say about how humans relate to something, but there's a really big difference. It's a very long continuum if you want to say that taking iron ore out of um, the earth in Latin America near communities, near indigenous communities, that those practices can, um, it can imperil those communities and that the mining companies might be based in Canada. Okay, that's, that's one thing. For you to do an interview with somebody, that's a really, really long continuum. So at a minimum, you would have to explain to me why it's important to use that word. I mean, not just to me, but to one. What is that word doing if one wants to make that continuum? If you just want to use it in your practice, I think there's, there's no issue. If one even wants to say, data extractivism as a practice, right? That's what that ism does to extraction. It's, it's saying that there's a practice involved. That's, that's fine too. Um, what we saw is a desire to make it all one practice, a definition of the human as such. And I had thought that we were already kind of nervous about those kinds of singular definitions. That sounds to me like something that Post-Enlightenment, already, there was a lot of questions about, you know, this is a kind of a philosophy of, of Kant or of Hume or of, or of Hegel, these attempts to say, this is just how humans work. The violence, let's just say this, I think, the other thing that's contained in it is this sense of an impropriety or a violence of some kind. So to take my information via a cookie online and then to develop it into algorithms or memes is certainly a kind of violence, but it's very different than having indigenous communities have their water poisoned. It's really different. I mean, you, you might disagree, but. No, I, I absolutely agree. And what I wonder is how to better point out those distinctions. Even when you said a kind of violence, I think this is really accurate. And uh, I know there's been some work to, to think about different kinds of violences as well, to sort of start to really make more specific definitions. I'm, I'm curious if you have thought linguistically about what terms might be better used when thinking about something like data extraction. Or labor extraction. I and labor extraction. Yeah, exactly. So I think, I think it's uh, again, it's this is a tricky one because in any situation we use words for multiple meanings. And when when one does the simplest act, like look up a word, a definition of a word, it will never have a single meaning. It'll have multiple meanings in any given situation. Um, and it the definition in a dictionary is something as basic as that is precisely there to indicate to the reader that kind of watch out this does other kinds of work in other kinds of situations. So that should be conceptually the same. I think there's, if I had to be much too general, much too general, but I'll say it anyway, there is this tendency in contemporary theory to want to speak these kind of broad metaphors. And I think that's dangerous I, what I'd rather see is if there's an encyclopedia entry on extractivism, there's a lot of different discussions of it, and maybe some might be set aside or some might just be noted, but it isn't all flattened out. I think the impulse of 
thinking of extractivism is of a practice of a violence that is a mode of a, a mode of action of some kind. So labor extraction is something that is classically has been described for a long time, which is to say you take something from somebody else. Very, very broad idea, perhaps unjustly, but again, definitionally, not necessarily, because it also just could be the act of taking something out. You extract something from your shed. I'm looking at my shed right now. I want to take the rusty axe from my shed to sharpen it and extract it hasn't particularly done a lot of violence to the to the axe like maybe making it rusty leaving it uh, not taking care of it maybe is a kind of a violence but it just means taking something out in a very very simple way so from that to again taking out minerals from the earth it's a really long movement so i i think perhaps what is at issue in your work is that precisely what part of an artistic labor might be is to trouble these kinds of terms, to trouble the easiness of these definitions that already exist and to point out that there might be kinds of connections that are important to think about. And I think that's very compelling. And the question would be to also then be, I, I think, definitionally cautious. So you could map lots of kinds of extraction. You could describe a general tendency, but again, the, the danger is to flatten them under a single term. If that exists precisely in your role as critics of concepts, um, interrogations of kind of norms, that's the kind of thing that would be apropos to your work. So definitions always confuse things. But it's precisely why we try to clarify them. I was just thinking about, I think that there's a return of a kind of animism in, in the arts and possibly in acad academia as well, and, and different ways of thinking about the animacy of non-human animals, of landscapes, minerals, like things like this. I think that's leading to people sensing maybe a multipl multiplication of the potential for harm and so people are then looking at different kinds of practices that involve taking plus potential of harm and they're kind of searching for words to to do that i guess you would offer offer to people that they should actually make new terms or find other other terms rather than relying on extractivism as as this kind of catch-all for all of these of these taking with harm practices so I would make one initial distinction, and then I'll come back to animism. Taking fossil fuels out of the ground does a certain kind of work to the planet. It's also a definite process. And what I mean by that is th there will come an end to that possibility. We were just talking about, at the beginning of this discussion, about regenerative agriculture, for instance, or even what I do right now on this farm or my companions do. We will take things out to consume them, but they grow back. Right? We can't keep up with the Swiss chard or kale. It just grows and grows and grows. So is that a kind of violence? I'm not sure because we're just acting in the way that an animal would act. An animal would eat those as well. Indeed, we have some fruit trees and we have a, a bear that lives somewhere nearby. And if we're not quick to remove the fruit, the bear will eat it. So the bear is also extracting it. So 
I think if one applies it to industrial agriculture, that's a different kind of development because it's also eroding the capacity of soil to regenerate, right? So that is, a, again, a different kind of work. We can continue to discuss this and, and make finer distinctions. One thing I would say to the animism that I have seen is that it imagines that the natural is, it's not amoral. It has some kind of morality which is consistent with types of human morality, especially um, anti-colonialist forms of morality, certain kinds of the production of new communities. What I always say back to this is, what if we were to have some kind of discourse or dialogue with um, the natural world and it turns out to be fascist, some elements of it? What if lichen could care less about us and could try to destroy us? Certainly, if one thinks about things like on our property, there's a plant called quack grass. It's also called cooch grass. It is impossible to remove. It is, um, exists on every continent. It didn't or originate here. And it, its aim is to eliminate everything else around it. Okay, That doesn't sound like something that is necessary, necessarily moral in the way we might want it to be. Um, and it's true of, of all kinds of other invasive species. Their interest is in dominating. Their, their impulse is kind of colonial, whatever their origin, whether or not human beings move them from one continent to another. There's Scottish broom is another one here on the west coast of Canada. But you can think of all other kinds around you as well. There's some dominant species on the earth that are disinterested in the existence of anything else. So I find it then strange that some of my colleagues would immediately concede to animals or to concede to plants or even to rocks, which I think they do. Always a, for lack of a better word, a liberal morality. Anthropomorphic as well. I mean, yeah, they anthropomorphize it in a direction of producing a companionship, a different mode of re relatability to each other and to the non-human. And it could be that they just don't want that. And that seems to be less discussed. I, I don't think after I get off of this interview, at some point today, I'll be spending my time pulling out invasive species or what are they? They have a different name for them now in, in permaculture um, language, which I could remember them. They're kind of like they're they're their own thing. We don't want to call them invasive, but we we just don't want yeah. them here. <laughs> so because they are actually foreign to the place, and they they are they are non natural, and then it becomes if one is to make to do re regenerative agriculture or to create a food forest, one has to be uh, alert to those kinds of creatures. There's some some that are very specific. You find on every single continent. They push aside other animals. Something as simple as a robin, a bird, is really damaging to other animals. Domestic cats are infamously damaging to the rest of the world. So at least there has to be a sense that, again, there's some complication there worthy of some type of analysis or negotiation. And, and I don't see that. I see there being what amounts to, I'm, I'm speaking in generalities, okay? So I, I'll probably get in trouble for saying these kinds of things. But there remains a romanticism about the natural 
uh, world. It is it is locked into our heads from the late 18th century, and we can continue to see it that way. You know, looking out over a horizon of a valley, and we go, "That's beautiful! How gorgeous!" And it may be that the trees you're looking at are all non-natural. You know, there is in the valley I live in. There's a movement that is very attuned to or or does not want any intervention into into the way the landscape exists now and their rationale for that is that doing so is a kind of a human violence the they forget then the history of this space and of most spaces on the planet with some exceptions but most places which they are already deeply unnatural so the valley i'm in has been probably twice over uh, deforested, at least patches of it. The forest is very dense, much denser than it would be in a natural environment. So the idea then that this is something to be left as it is, because otherwise there's a violence, is a is a strange bl- blindness to the history of the place. Uh, as just another example, we are plagued right now with uh, mosquitoes, and so there's an ongoing discussion about whether there should be attempts to control the mosquitoes. There are ways to do it without using harsh chemicals. But for the most part, those people who live here don't want to do it because they see it as as damaging to the ecosystem that exists right now. So it bec- it's difficult to have a discussion with them about the fact that what they see as natural is already human-produced. So where they mostly hatch is in a swamp area in the bottom of the valley, which was which is a park, a natural park. Um, and that natural park was not there 100 years ago in the form it takes now. So do you, do you see what I'm saying? So I would say the more deeply we are attentive to the how messed up every single zone is, how always already there's a, a depth of a things have already been done to them. Um, I was just in the in Scotland for the last three months. I loved going to the Highlands. Um, the Highlands are deforested, and if you went there without thinking about them, you would just think, "What interesting hills!" It's so so compelling how they grow without trees. That type of thing. If you think about the history of England, it's because they've been it's been removed by the 16th century and so part of the practice of colonialism was to then come to new, to the new world and start foresting from the east coast to the west in a quite a profound and intensive way so that means that yeah north america there's nothing natural here in in one sense and that means that then there's other kinds of relations we should have to it, and we should be cautious about over-romanticization. And I would say Canada is one of the worst places for this because it's the nature is so deeply tied to our identities. Um, it's, it's how we project ourselves, and it is one of the frustrating places in which to then do environmental work because there's this sense either that there's lots of nature, you don't have to worry about it, but also that Canadians are caretakers of it. 
And then what becomes very hard coming back around to extraction to discuss is are things such as I think 75% of the planet's mining companies are headquartered in Canada. Just not discussed that the contribution that the Canadian government imagines that it's going to make to climate change is to extract rare minerals um, from Northern Ontario to uh, help with the development of car batteries. So all of this kind of mess, and I'll, and I'll stop there. But coming back to that animism, I do think that it has a political impulse, which is a genuine one, which is attempt to, as you said, it's an attempt to unnerve the anthropocentric view of how one shapes a place but that isn't i think to concede then everything to what you were messing up eliminates a big history that has to be part of the discussion you brought up so many interesting um topics just now thank you I think we're really on the same page that every area is always already interacting with humanness at this point. I think it's very hard to extract the two from each other somehow. And in a way, I think this is why we've kind of been so playful in terms of our like artistic um, problematizing of this question is because, you know, as we enter a space, let's say for field recording, there's a lot of different aspects that we can start to think about like of course there might be the animism of um let's just take the example if we we rustled a tree and we took the field recording of the tree rustling um you know we might think of uh whether the tree has animacy but then we might also think well did the tree and 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 therefore can it consent to the field recording yep let's say we're you know we're really getting playful here then did the species consent to being there yeah. somehow? Or was it brought? Was it uh, planted by a gardener? Was the labor of the gardener fair? Was the uh, the plot of land taken from previous owners? You could kind of go on and on and on. And uh, also thinking about a question I think comes up a lot in artistic practice, which is around credit and authorship. To whom, to whom do we owe this field recording? Who are all of the the actors involved and the way in which the natural world and the human world interacts? So maybe the gardener for, you know, for gardening it, maybe the designer of, of the garden, maybe the person who, who brought the seeds, you know, so many different aspects. So I think going back to what you said earlier, it, it you said trouble. <laughs> maybe it's our job to kind of trouble this question of both consent and and authorship. I like that a lot, um, what you're describing, because as opposed to doing what I I have seen, which is some field recordings where one moves into a swamp, one moves into the little swamp down here and then records the uh, mosquitoes buzzing around their heads, that can be compelling. You can do various kinds of things with it um, in audio production. But then what you miss is why is it there where does it originate? All those kinds of things. And that has to be unfolded as well. You know? And maybe just coming back to some of the things I would say, when you say, does the tree want to be there? Um, maybe the tree wants to be there. You know, this is the kind of tricky thing, because if a tree's goal is to spread itself, that's, its, that's what it mainly does. 
right? It, it does over a cycle. It repeatedly produces offspring for lack of a better word in as, as much to as much degree as possible. It is competitive with other plants around it because it can only spread to the degree that it has available space. And so I often wonder, does uh, a certain tree or a certain bush, um, the non-native one, does it, is it thrilled to have been able to be on multiple continents? Is it precisely what it always hoped to be able to do? So that's a kind of the, the second question to always ask about it, or one of the other questions to ask about it. That's interesting because the, the eucalyptus tree, which is now so ubiquitous, around the world actually had already kind of reached Papua New Guinea by the time that the colonization started. So it was trying to, to do that. Yeah, they move within their range to the degree possible. You know, I've often thought about that the, these kind of tricky questions of um, heating planets and changing of what, what are they called? There's kind of, kind of zones um, the world is split up into zones where different plants can live. Um, I think the zone we're in is called 5B. So there's some things that will grow here and some things that won't. Well, it's been kind of mapped. One of the things that have been mapped is how those will change over time. So um, is this, if we want to do animism, is this really exciting to the plants that are here? <laughs> is it exciting to... I live on the side of a mountain. Uh, is it excite, exciting to the coffee plant that it can move outside of the tropic, uh, the tropic lines where it's right now um, limited? And I know these are speculative and strange questions to ask. To me, they're important as a way of deferring the easy kind of sense of what, what is a moral relationship to these plants. Now that doesn't mean that we go in and chop them down because we're terrified of them taking over territory. It does mean it's just a different relation. I'll tell you one, one, one of the many things that I've learned from being here that has changed my viewpoint a lot. So we have a wonderful forest behind us and it seems great and healthy and so on. It's very dense. We had a nearby colleague come another farmer and he the minute he saw it he said you have to go in there and trim it you have to cut down a bunch of trees um you have to reshape that landscape fundamentally and at first we were like what like that's so opposed to what we might think and what he explained is that that's just not how a forest grows um this is because this has already been de deforested has been used for lumber at some point and then it, when it's not taken care of, it grows back in this kind of dense way. Yesterday, my um, wife and I, we went for a hike in an area that had never been touched. And we noted how much empty floor, forest floor, there is in that kind of forest. You have some big trees. You don't have trees just kind of stuck together. So then we were told and we've kind of started to cut down the smaller trees and part of the reason we've done that is because the trees are, some of them are very unhealthy. And so you'll have birch trees that reach about 30 to 50 years old and they'll suddenly just crumble. That's, they won't fall. There'll be a moment when you're walking by or even hear them and they'll just kind of fall apart. 
because they're not meant to be to have that kind of density. So we're we're learning these kinds of odd. Uh, I, it would it would be against my 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 natural inclinations. Maybe even I was I would say as a city dweller to go in and start chopping trees down. It is the people that live here. I've also learned about kind of their sensibility. So I would have to say when I first moved here, I felt that they were they they were very come back. They really extracted from the earth. I've kind of in an indeterminate way. I've since learned that they're much more attuned to practices that in books would be like regenerative agriculture or something like the small farmer has animals not because they're desperate to eat their flesh but because they need the manure they need the compost there would be animals on any patch of land if you don't have them it doesn't work in the same way and we have to be the animals in the spring there are snails that come out and they're just eating everything okay if there were ducks or birds they would be eating the snails like not to extinction but that's part of the practice and then the the duck droppings would enrich the soil and so on and so on and so on so you know if if we had only cows that goes against how this works but here they're very attuned to the types of things that you do we collect all organic matter we produce you know from anything we cook to using composting toilets or to whatever because we need that soil we need it to enrich the soil so i understand better how this works and and again it goes against what i would have thought i should do but i understand better how you live within a kind of an ecosystem cycle and how animals do figure into that and that anybody that does some of this kind of work and, and many of these books they'll never just be vegetarians Right. You'll, you'll have to have this other element. Again, not monocrop. So just coming back, the, the people here know these kinds of things about both the naturalness and the unnaturalness of the space. They know that when you grow something in a certain way, you are extracting minerals um, from the soil. You have to put them back, else it doesn't grow more. And so what they're interrupting is that other part of the anthropocentric narrative, which is kind of monocrop where you then have to artificially put as much minerals, nitrogen back into the soil as you can. When I look out at where I live, I think, so amazing, absolutely gorgeous, natural. Uh, I can't imagine going to cut down a tree. And within kind of a year or so being here, suddenly I own a truck. I can't do the things I need to do without a pickup truck. I have a chainsaw. That is not what I thought would be part of this practice here you know if you're recording a a tree maybe you're recording a chainsaw of course we still do this kind of thing where the chainsaws are electric chainsaws or they're battery powered as a huge number of garden power tools now are indeed i would say the the vast majority no longer work on diesel or um, other kinds of fossil fuels and even there not sure that that will work because you have to keep powering them up. And you have the metal itself of, of the blade. It, it really does become endless. It does. Which I think is why, I mean, I, I agree. It, it can't be a sort of black and white more question of morality, but rather of different kinds of choices and different kinds of practices 
However, I still it still makes me question who has the who has the kind of right to decide what are what are better practices and how those decisions get made. And I, I don't necessarily find an answer there, but it's yeah. interesting. Well, you have to help with the answer. I mean, you know, and then I will say again, to begin with, this valley it has a history that those who don't live here won't know. There was a First Nations community that lived in this valley. They likely didn't kind of farm on a mountainside because that turns out to be hard and kind of stupid. But there, there's no longer any uh, of them in this valley. There's very few members of that original Indigenous community. There was another kind of history of Russian um, religious community. They left Russia prior to the Russian Revolution, not because of the revolution, but because of the the emperor and how they were repressed. So they ended up in this valley, a lot of them. They then were oppressed by the Canadian government because they seemed very, very foreign. And there was protests and even violence around them. Then in World War II, this valley was used to build Japanese internment camps and then in the 1970s, this was a place where uh, American draft dodgers came to in large numbers as well. Incredible mix-up of, of uh, histories. If you go hiking, kind of backcountry hiking, you'll still come across the remnants of old pot fields. And no one's there anymore because it's been you know, legalized in Canada. And so it, no one would buy it. There's no point to it anymore. And then I would say this final wave you have are people who have very good intentions, very good impulses around the natural world. They're people that they're serious about organic food, organic farming. Some of them are, they understand their choices you have to make to grow organic vegetables when there are invasive species. Others are opposed to that. Uh, strongly. It's a, it is a really, really compelling mix where there's no way to be right. Maybe that's even the wrong thing to think through or worry about. It's just about uh, the, the world we've shaped and then the kinds of questions that you're asking. You know, if I have to go thin out the forest, is that the right thing to do? I might be thinking to help help the forest itself and I thin out the non-native species. In another way, that could just be evidence of the remnants of the human beings that have already been here. It's kind of an archive that might be worthy to have there as evidence of something, as opposed to this sense of, I'm going to restore it in some kind of way. We started a little bit talking about regenerative agriculture, and that is this sense of letting a space be retaken. But then interestingly, regenerative agriculture is curated, right? It, it, it's because uh, there's a, a lot of research done into like, well, what was the correct relationality of these plants? So if I just let this space grow wild, uh, it wouldn't be regenerated. It would just be all quack grass and birch trees, and I'm not saying that's wrong or right. I'm saying that in the terms of the philosophies of regenerative practices, that's they would not do that. They would very carefully attend to what this kind of zone 
would have been like. And and again, there's there are archives of that because there's parts here that are never touched. So you have to reconstruct basically an idea of what the past landscape was like in order then to have the principles to to work yeah through. Yeah. I would say an artistic analog is kind of this idea of authenticity, which you know, this is we, we often come upon when we're thinking about musical origins or dance origins and um, what what was what was the original music sounding like, who has permission then to use it in you know, in what way, who first created it and of course music is actually very similar in, in the sense that there's so many different forms of collaboration and influences over time that have gone into making it that it's sometimes really hard to parse apart these questions. It's impossible. And yet at the same time, I think also, of course, they're, they're worth asking. Right. But then what? There is a then what that is a hard one. You know, there's a then what to the goals that nations have set for themselves in terms of CO2 reduction. One of the things that always I stress in my work is that just worrying about that skips over all of the other questions about political formations, about uh, social goods and their distribution and so on. So one of the perverse things that is certainly ongoing at the moment is you have this attempt to address a very big and complicated question of climate change at the same time as governments have are weakest and corporations have most power. So as a result of now four decades of, of neoliberalization. Neoliberal, but even were we to get to 2050, it doesn't really address the problems that got us there in the first place. I am trying to write something about Bill Gates's book on climate change he suddenly seems to have become a social actor in all kinds of ways. He, I have to say it's quite smart. It's technocratic. However, it's exceptionally tone deaf to any kind of political change or social change that has to accompany climate change. Basically, his prescription is that technological entrepreneurs will manage to bridge the gap between the cost of producing green energy and the current cheap um, fossil fuels. And the way that'll happen is that governments will provide enormous amounts of funding to these tech entrepreneurs, because otherwise these risk-averse people won't do it. So it's, again, more transfer of wealth. And I'm sure then a transfer of wealth that produces a lot of wealth for some individuals versus others. So I, a green world would be great, a green world where some people own the capacity to green it or not is not what I would be interested in. And in a lot of ways, uh, I say this with some caution, I'm not that interested in, in climate action specifically. I'm interested in this opportunity opened up by um, action on climate change to also address other kinds of uh, necessary changes there's this moment, hopefully or potentially, I think still, where everything is in question. You can have questions not just about whether you use solar panels or fossil fuels. There, ha there then is a discussion about why you ever used one or the other in the first place and who owned it, who benefited from it, 
how it who how it's distributed the goods uh, around the world, how it impacted wars, how it shaped the decisions that governments made, all that kind of thing. So we're having a discussion about that in a way we didn't in 1985. We have to insert this other element, or it's kind of yeah. I don't want a green neoliberalism. Right. There has to be polit- politi- questions of political economy and ecology have to go together. And social justice. Yeah, there's a, there's a um, London Review of Books article about the industry behind uh, the wind turbines, which was really, really, really yeah, good. Yeah, by James Meek. Yeah. It's a, it's, but the one, it's a, great, it's a great piece about the construction of the turbines in Korea based on yeah. Danish technology um, and how they repeatedly kind of rip off the British government and uh, mess up a small community in England. Yeah, it's it's very, very good. If all that one comes away with from such an article is the, the way that a few companies own all of the technology to produce wind power, um, that already says a lot. I feel like those discussions are not happening to the degree they should. Te- green technologies can be downloaded to small governments in the way anything else was. You know, you can insist that Tanzania adopt green technology, but you yeah. they have to pay for it. And so they get a World Bank loan and they can't cover it. And then suddenly they have to sell off their goods to, you know, to uh, foreign governments or to, to the World Bank. You know the whole story. It's just that it happens on green principles. And so it has supposedly or conceptually or politically, it can be framed as a, a better a decision by governments than if it was fossil fuels. There's there's an incredible amount of greenwashing at every single level of this discussion. You've just heard from Imra Seaman. Imra is the inaugural director of the Institute for Environment, Conservation and Sustainability and professor of human geography at the University of Toronto Scarborough. He's currently working on Petrocultures, Globalization, Culture and Energy, and The Future of the Sun, a book detailing corporate and state control of the transition to renewables. I caught up with him with my partner in Hyenas, Adrian Teicher, when we are working on our project researching extractivism and the arts. I'm Mad Kate, and you've been listening to Sweat, a series of conversations about performance and performativity of the sexual and sexualized body in work. The theme music was composed by me and features the voice of performer and actress Lori Baldwin. Sweat airs each month first on Collaboradio on the first Tuesday of the month at 1 o'clock Central European Time. Collaboradio airs on Free Radio's Berlin Brandenburg, which is fr-bb.org. Thanks so much, and until next time.